I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe all my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Rabbi Gunter Plout, in his commentary on this passage, reminds us that most of the great prophets whose works are recorded in the First Testament lived a good 150 to 200 years before the devastation that came in 587 and 586. In the scroll of Isaiah, we believe we have the works of three great prophets. One writing back in that 8th century, the second writing from captivity in Babylon, and the third section of that scroll we believe written by someone who lived to go home again after the 50 years in exile. But Rabbi Gunter Plaut says Ezekiel lived through all of those periods. Not the 8th century, of course, but he was a young man already preaching, already prophesying to his people the devastation that was almost sure to befall them because of the injustices within their system. He saw the fires burn that beautiful temple on the top of Mount Moriah. He saw the fires burning the royal residence. He saw the beautiful furniture, gold and silver, bronze objects being taken out of temple and palace. He saw the gates of their beloved city being burned, the walls tumbled down, and then found himself along the muddy banks of that Kabar Canal in ancient Babylon with a people who were defeated, who sat down and waited to die. Rabbi Plout says, if you were Ezekiel, what would you say next? What would you say to a people so devastated, so defeated, who knew that in their history, once they had gone to Egypt, they were slaves for 400 years? What if they should be in Babylon 400 years? What would you say to those people? And this, we've just read, is a portion of what he said. I've underlined four things. Number one, God says to you, I will sprinkle clean water on your heads and make you clean. Joel Collette has written that when he finally had his driver's license, had his first date with a girl, just to be two of them in a car he was going to drive, as his father handed him the car keys, he said, John, remember who you are. He said, when I was ready to go away to college, we'd packed up everything we could possibly get in the car. We were ready to drive away. My father looked me in the eye and said, John, do not forget who you are. And he said, three days before my father died, he looked up from his bed and said, John, remember who you are. And I always knew what he meant. He meant you have been baptized a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
the Holy Spirit of God whispered, You are my son, John. Thank you for coming home to me. Nobody will ever take you from me. That's who you are, John. That's who you are. At the general conferences of the Methodist Church, we usually have at least one major service where we remember who we are as baptized disciples of Jesus Christ. Four years ago, I remember in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, how they took a big pitcher, a beautiful crystal pitcher, and poured the waters dramatically into the font down at the front of that convention center. You could see it pouring out of the pitcher into the big font. And then little, smaller baptismal fonts were taken to all parts of that big convention center. And as the singing continued, you could get up and go to the one nearest you, dip your fingers into the bowl and make the sign of the cross or just touch your forehead and remember who you are. In Fort Worth, two weeks ago, we had the same sort of dramatic presentation at the beginning, the pouring of the water into the font. And then a young woman came out from the wings. She had a long evergreen branch, two, three feet long, and she dipped it down into the font. She lifted it up, and you could see the water dripping from it. And then toward all those bishops seated behind her, she threw it like that, and the water just sprinkled about half of them at one toss. And then little children came out. I was telling Eva Marie earlier, maybe 10, 11 years old, about the age of our Josh, I'd say, maybe Parker. And these children came out, and they all took these little bowls of water from the altar, and every one of them had a little evergreen branch, and they started down every major aisle of that convention center in Fort Worth, sprinkling water on you, throwing the water out as far as they could from these little evergreen sprouts. Remember who you are. In the next two weeks, with all the things you must deal with, every morning, wake up and remember who you are. You are a baptized disciple, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul would write centuries later, so be sure you're not acting like them. Be sure you're acting like Him. Number two, Ezekiel said to these defeated people, God told me He's going to take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. Now, when you and I use the word heart today, if we're not thinking biologically as the pump that sends blood coursing to our outer extremities, we usually think of the heart as the site of emotions. Emotions. On bumper stickers, you see a little heart in somebody's dachshund or something. They love their little dog. They love their kitty cat or whatever it may be. It's about emotion. Not so in the First Testament. In the First Testament, the emotions were deep in the lower abdomen. Feelings came out of the lower, deep abdomen. The heart was the place of reason. The heart was the place of the mind, if you will. Heart is where you made up your mind about doing things or not doing things. Uh, the word agape in Greek is more that kind of word. Uh, eros is about physical attraction. Philios is about people you like and people you don't like. But agape is a decision of the mind. Now we say mind. 
the first testament said heart heart making up your heart god will give you a new heart that will do the right things Gail and I started going to opera a few years ago. And one of the things we've admired most are the beautiful sets that often come with the opera presentations here. And we also have noticed in the programs that great opera companies share these sets. One great opera company may do the set for La Boheme and another one for Aida or something. Several of the beautiful sets that have come to Tulsa the last few years have come from San Francisco Opera Company. So back in the fall, last October, I was reading about a new opera that had been commissioned by the San Francisco Opera. It was called Appomattox. You and I immediately have our minds rushed back to that surrender of General Lee to General Grant that ended the Civil War. This new opera, presented for the first time in San Francisco last fall, is about that surrender in the days leading up to it. We need to be reminded from time to time that we suffered more deaths in our four-year civil war than Americans have ever suffered in any other war. More in the civil war than the Spanish-American, more in the civil war than World War I, more in the civil war even than World War II, Vietnam, first Persian Gulf, Afghanistan or Iraq today, more in our great civil war. We've been to many of those battlefields, as I'm sure you have been. When our children were much younger, we took a bicentennial trip that included some of those great battlefields, including Gettysburg, those beautiful green fields of Pennsylvania. And yet, we had a young guide there from the, from the National Park Service describing how the cannon smoke billowed out over the green grass and wave upon wave upon wave of soldiers fell and died. Thousands, thousands on a spot of ground you can see just by moving in 180 degrees you can see where thousands of people died. There's a scene in this new opera where Mary Todd Lincoln and some of the wives of the generals have gathered and it being opera they sing and what they're singing is about, let there be no more war. Let there be no more war. Let there be no more war. And young women start coming from the wings of the theater and putting photographs down on the edge of the stage. Her son, her husband, her brother, her son, her husband, her brother. Most of them male casualties on the battlefields then. Somebody's son somebody's brother, somebody's husband, somebody's father. And they singing, no more war. No more war. 150 years ago. And we're still warring. We're still warring. Ezekiel said, God Almighty told me, I want to put a new heart in you. Removing your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh so that you do the right things. Number three, next Sunday we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit of God. But right here in this text, it says, I will put my spirit within you. My spirit. It's that wonderful Hebrew word, ruach. 
In the very beginning, when God created human beings, he breathed on them. Ruach. We've seen new babies born. You've seen your babies or grandbabies born. I mean, minutes after, you see their little chest moving up and down, up and down. They're breathing fine now. The very breath of God. That's what the First Testament considered it. The very breath of God. But how we need a new breath, a new spirit. Mary Carr is a, is a poet who's now begun to write books about her life. She's written two. And in those first two books, she describes that she grew up in a family that didn't go to church. <clears throat> in fact, she said, uh, churches were made fun of. We were told that all preachers are charlatans, all church people self-righteous. They don't really care about anybody but themselves. They create some kind of God because they're weak and spineless and don't know how to function without one. She said, when I got married, I married a man, felt the same way I did. And then we had a little boy. And after he had grown a few years, one week he said to me, Mom, would you take me to church? I said, to what? And he said, to church. And I asked, why? And he said, because I want to see if God is really there. Well, she said, I'll take you to church and we'll see if God is really there. I was convinced he wasn't, and I was convinced my son was bright enough he'd realize he wasn't. I took him to church, but after that Sunday, he said he wanted to go again. So I decided to take him to a different church. I was sure he had decided God wasn't there, but after that service was over, he said he wanted to go again. And the next Sunday, we went to a third church, and the next Sunday, a fourth. And finally, I said, why don't we find us a synagogue? And we went to one of those on a Friday night. And then we went to a Roman Catholic church one Sunday morning. And that Sunday morning, the preacher caught us, the priest. He was standing at the back door as we started to leave. And he shook my hand and asked my name, the name of my son. And I said, now, Father, you need to understand something. I've brought my son here the same way I take him to soccer, and I don't care for that game either. And he said the, she said, the priest smiled very nicely and warmly and said, I believe the Lord is working on you. And she said, we went on home, but there was something about the way he had said that, that I was afraid he might be right. And I went back the next Sunday and the next Sunday. Finally, I, I understood what baptism was all about. And finally, I got to go to the table of the Lord. And when I heard about the body broken for me and the blood shed for me and that I could come home making no claim at all except I wanted to be home. It was at the table, she said, discovered God was really there. He was there. Number four. Ezekiel says, guess what? These good things are not going to happen because all of you have suddenly become good. On the contrary, I don't see any change in you from the way you were behaving when we were back in Jerusalem. You're the same old people I've known all these years of my life. But God is merciful. God is gracious. And when he sprinkles clean water on your head, when he puts a new heart in you, and when he breathes into you his own spirit, it will all be so you will start doing the right things. You will pay careful attention to my 
commands and my ordinances. The opening worship at General Conference was impressive. We Methodists know how to do this. And we have enough professionals like the Penseras that we can just bring talented people from all over the world. We can do worship. I tell you, when that crucifer came down the aisle, that cross must have been 12 feet in the air. Everything has to be a little bigger in a place the size of the convention center in Fort Worth. We were told there were nearly 7,000 people there that night. 992 delegates on the floor, but another 6,000 in, in the arena. And that young man had a huge long pole in the cross right up at the top with banners flying from it as he came. He was almost in a dead run coming down the aisle with all these Methodists singing. And then they had liturgical dancers from Africa right behind him. And they were wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And 7,000 people singing our hymns. And finally it was time for somebody to preach. And it was Bishop Janice Hewitt. You remember when she was here for our series? She was marvelous. She was marvelous. She was already anticipating that we were two weeks from Pentecost. And all these many voices we could hear in that arena, nine different languages being spoken. She talked about Peter standing up seven weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus and saying in the translation of Dr. Eugene Peterson, I've decided to make my home in the land of hope. I have decided to make my home in the land of hope. She was president of the Council of Bishops the last two years, and that became the theme for the General Conference and the next four years of United Methodism living in the land of hope. Of hope. But she got down to what really matters. And Mr. Wesley said nearly 300 years ago now, you want to know what agape really means? Let me make it very simple for you. Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with your God. And then he looked at those folks who were joining the Wesleyan societies throughout England, Scotland, Ireland, and said, Did you get that? It's pretty simple. Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. One of the presiding bishops one morning was Bishop Michael Watson. More than 30 years ago, I preached for Michael Watson when he was a much younger man, 30, 31 years ago probably, and he and his wife had a little son named Benjamin. If you've ever read that book I wrote many years ago now called Moments to Hold Close, there's a chapter in there about little Benjamin. Uh, I thought he was the cutest kid I'd, I'd just nearly ever seen. Um, and his mom and daddy were so good with him. Uh, I remember when we ate out and so on. It, it was wonderful. Now Ben's all grown up and coaching a little league baseball team of his son. And Michael Watson is a bishop now. He went on to be pastor of our great Dauphin Way Church in Mobile, Alabama. And from there was elected a bishop. He was presiding. And he was telling us about some of the good things happening in Uganda. Now, in African country after African country, there are coup d'etats and so on, lots of violence because Western European nations often drew the boundaries to those countries and we didn't take into account their tribes, tribes within those countries and each one wanting control. But there is good news. I'll tell you more about this in the next few weeks. There are now 18 democracies in Africa that are doing well. 18 have democracies and are doing well. 
but Uganda had been just plundered in one of these coups. And our Methodist bishop in Uganda and his wife started walking the streets of one of the little towns looking for orphan children. Mamas and papas killed by one tribe, overrunning another and killing everybody they found. And they started finding children hiding, hiding in the woods, hiding under rubble from houses bombed out and so on, finding these little children. They found a dozen of them and, they, and two dozen of them. And they end, finally, they have 250 kids, orphaned children, orphaned children living in a place they've chosen to call the humble, the humble house. Bishop Watson said, the Council of Bishops sent me there to see our work in Uganda, and I knew you needed to see some of these children, and here they are. And an African drum started to beat, and 23 precious black children came out of the wings. They had on a green kente cloth, all of them little girls in dresses, little boys in, in breeches and shirts, and all of them had shoes immaculately polished. I mean, just... The camera lights were just glistening off the toes of their shoes as they came out to the beat of these drums. They handed one little fellow. We later heard his name was Solomon. And little Solomon started to sing. And these 22 children behind him started to sing. The littlest one looked to me like about the age of our little Barrett, five. The oldest one might have been as old as our Abby, 12. 23 kids from five to 12. They electrified that crowd. I tell you, 7,000 people were on their feet as these children sang of joy. You have never seen brighter eyes. You have never seen bigger smiles in your life than these 23 kids had. And the next day, there were interviews with some of those children in the daily paper that we got at our desk. And little Solomon said, I was just praying I would do well. And one little girl said, I was just praying all these people who have money would keep our home safe. Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with the Lord. 